Um, Hebrews chapter 9, I want to kind of set the tone for where we're going in this. We want to see the supremacy of Christ in all things. It's a beautiful book in the summer with all the chaos of everything that takes place. I really want us to grab hold of Jesus. There is nothing more beautiful that you can do in your life than grab hold of Christ and view life as he has created you to view it through him. And and Hebrews chapter 9 is a powerful text of scripture. And the basis for it really began all the way back in Hebrews chapter 1. But the author starts to highlight where he's building into chapter 9 all the way back in in chapter 5. He starts talking about the the idea of priesthood, how Jesus is represented as a high priest by the order of Melchizedek. What in the world does that mean? We've talked about that together. With the identity of priest comes law. With the identity of law comes temple. All of it culminates together. Uh, The priest came to, to live out the law as it was introduced to be performed in the context of the temple. And Hebrews chapter 9, we're now going to deal with the topic of temple. What is temple? Are we supposed to be at one? How many are you supposed to have? I mean, all these ideas on on what the temple represents for us is being described in Hebrews chapter 9 and relating it to Jesus and our relationship with him. And so when you turn to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1, when you kick off this uh, section of scripture, it, is, it really introduces to us what the context or the layout of the temple looked like as God prescribed it uh, for the Jews. And if you want to read about it in, in scripture, uh, Exodus chapter 20, you start to see God giving the law. By the time you get to chapter 25, he starts talking about uh, application to the temple or the tabernacle as it was first called. And then the giving of, of the priesthood, you can really read about it. Leviticus chapter 16, chapter 17 is the most sacred performance by the priest in the temple on the day of atonement. But in Hebrews chapter 9, the author is going to really fine tune uh, what the temple is about. Just in, the, just in the furniture that takes place there. And this furniture that God tells us to place in the temple, the original temple and tabernacle that, that it was built. All of it has a greater picture for us to see our identity in Jesus. In, in verse five, he says, if I just skip down to the bottom, he tells us that they, uh, above it were the cherubim. I'm going to tell you what that is in a minute of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Tell you what that is in a minute, but he says this, but of these things, we cannot speak in detail. So he's, he's really just saying in this chapter, I'm, I'm going to read all of it, but he's saying, Uh, Look, what I'm describing the temple is just kind of the nuts and bolts. I'm just skimming through this because he's got a greater purpose behind it. So so we're not getting into big detail as to everything within the context of the temple, but this is what he says, verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. Now, you remember in in chapter 8, we talked about the new covenant that was being uh, taken place in Christ. And and now he's referring back to the first covenant, the old covenant, the Old Testament. He's saying even that had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one. When he's talking about the outer one, he's referring to the outer room in the temple. The temple only had two rooms. God told the people to only ever build two rooms in this tabernacle or temple. And so he's talking about the outer room right now, the outer one in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread that is, that is called the holy place. So he describes really two articles of furniture in the outer temple. There's really three. I'll tell you why he's not describing the third in a minute, but he's talking about this lampstand and this, this sacred table where bread was placed on it. Verse three, behind the second veil, there was a, a tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden jar holding the manna. 
and Aaron's rod, which was budded, and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot speak in detail. So in in verse 3, he starts to describe then this altar of incense, and behind that, the Ark of the Covenant. And on the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat with cherubim. And inside of the the, the Ark, which really means, it's the word box, inside of this box, there's a few items, manna, Aaron's rod, and and, and the the Ten Commandments, and all these sacred to Israel and the covenant which God has given them. The rod identified Aaron as the high priest that was able to go into the temple, and the manna which God provided for the people in the wilderness. When it describes this, uh, back to the altar of incense, as it's describing it, it's saying it's in the Holy of Holies. But what's actually interesting about the altar of incense is that it's in the outer room. It's not in the main room where the Ark of the Covenant ends, actually in the outer room. The reason why the author in this context is saying it's in the inner room or the sacred room is because the altar of incense was intended to be a a sweet aroma before God. And the high priest, when he would enter into the Holy of Holies, which is the most sacred room, he would take smoke from the altar. And he would use the smoke to cloud uh, the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant, where the cherubim were located, the angels over this mercy seat, as if to mask the glory of God. Because if someone were to look directly at the glory of God, it would kill them. And so this... This altar of incense could actually be described in either room because it had rolls in both rooms. But the table itself sat in the outer room. And so when one were to gather at the temple, all that took place in the temple was conducted by the priests. And on the outside of this, this two-room temple, there was the altar of sacrifice and the labor for washing. And so you would go there for your sins on behalf of your family as a man, uh, only a male could enter into this place. And the, the priest would take the offering to the altar and would sacrifice it. Uh, the, the man would lay his head on the animal that would be sacrificed as if to say, may uh, the sins that I have conducted against God be laid upon this animal. The, the, the priest would sacrifice the animal. They would take the blood of the animal. There was different ways in which they would apply it. Sometimes they would apply the blood of the animal, we'll talk more about this next week, but on the corners of the altar where there were horns uh, as, as to be a representation of the sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins, there would be washing that took place of hands and feet at the laver. And then they would go in the priest, only the priest could go in into the outer room. In the outer room, there would be the lamp stand, there would be the table, and there would be the altar of incense. At the table, this, there was 12 loaves of bread representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Symbolic of communion with God. And this culture and this time period, and even if you go to Middle Eastern cultures today, being invited into someone's home is, is to call you friend, family. It's, it's to bring you in. And, and when you walk into God's tabernacle, the word tabernacle literally means dwelling place. And so this is God's dwelling place. When you walked into God's dwelling place, there was the table. And at the table, communion. And at this communion table, all 12 tribes were represented. And they were to always keep this bread fresh. Every week, they, they, enter, they, they changed out the bread to show a relationship with God and communion with God that was to stay fresh. On the opposite side of the table, on the left-hand side, was the candlestick. This was the only light provided in this temple, as God is light to us. 
And this altar of incense was to be before this mercy seat and it raised this aroma before God. It was representation of the, of the, of the beauty of God's people as they sacrificed before the Lord. In fact, if you were to read Revelation chapter five, I think it's verse eight and chapter eight, verse three, it talks about God's people praying to him and the prayers of the saints are this beautiful incense being lifted up before God. In this outer room, in behind it then was the inner room, the Holy of Holies. Interesting thing about this room is that only one person could enter this room one time a year. The most sacred place where God's presence was said to dwell. And when he went into this room, it was to be clouded with smoke so that God's presence would not strike them dead. And they would go to the mercy seat, symbolic of the throne of God. And they would sprinkle blood on the day of atonement. In Leviticus chapter 17, it's described for the remission of sins uh, for God's people. And this idea of, of these, these two rooms, the, this furniture that existed, these six items that God prescribes for his people to, to alter it in any way, to add anything to, to it, was to be sacrilegious. In fact, you can read in scripture where uh, certain individuals attempt to do things in the temple when they shouldn't. They attempt to take what, what's called the first priest, Aaron's sons, actually take unholy smoke into the temple and, and they're struck dead because of it. To do anything different than what God prescribes here is sacrilegious. But each one of these Pieces of furniture within the temple was symbolic of a greater picture for which God wanted us to understand in him. But in it all and through it all, what we see in this tabernacle is God creating a space for us to meet him, to draw near to him, and to know him as he desires to make himself known in our lives. And as the author describes the temple in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 to 5, he then, in verse 6, starts to describe where it falls short. The people of Israel see the temple as an end in itself. But we've studied together as we've looked even last week when we were talking about the law, that when God told Moses to build the tabernacle, he gives the law at Mount Sinai, Exodus chapter 20. By the time you get to chapter 25 and verse 40, chapter 26 and verse 30, when God's showing Moses how to, how to build this tabernacle, God says to him that it's merely a shadow in, in 25 verse 40, and it's just simply a plan outlaying the, the greater temple in which God dwells in heaven in chapter 26 and verse 30. So the temple is, and the tabernacle is not an end in itself but a picture of something greater. In fact, if you were to flip to Hebrews chapter eight, verse five, you'll see in chapter 10, verse one as well, that the author, and wedged in between chapter nine, the author in chapter eight and the author in chapter 10, it refers to what's taking place in the law and the temple as a shadow of a greater thing. And so in chapter nine, verse six, the author starts to describe it this way. He says this, when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. Remember, we contrasted this idea of Jesus uh, being the, uh, the greater priest representing the greater law and the new covenant versus the old covenant. 
that the priest continually performing. In this temple, there was never a, a place to sit down. The, the priests were always working because there was never enough sacrifice that could take place because ultimately none of these sacrifices could ever satisfy the demands of a holy God. The minute you walked into that temple, you made a sacrifice. It wasn't five minutes after you're gone before you needed to return again because of some sin that you've conducted. And so these priests are constantly working, but not Jesus. Chapter 8, the first two verses, tells us that he sits down at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning, as if to say his sacrifice is sufficient. And so in 9, verse 6, here they are, these things that have been prepared. The priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself, for the sins of the people committed into ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is symbolic for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. So what's it saying? Here you have the high priest continually in the outer room, on and on. And he goes into the second room, the Holy of Holies, but only one time of year. And it's never enough. In fact, verse 9 and 10 tells us it's symbolic. And verse 10 takes that idea of symbolism just a little bit further and and says to us, in reality, it's only outward performance. It's only an outward display. And he's beginning to recognize that while religiously we may perform all of these outward things, what we really need is a reformation. We need an absolute inner change in our lives. And so while the the tabernacle for us, while the temple for us is a demonstration that God desires to be near, tabernacle meaning God's dwelling place, the symbolism of, of the temple and tabernacle also says to us, while God is so close, we still remain distant. Because it's only the priests that can go into those sacred rooms. And it's only the high priest that can go into the most sacred room. And he only does it one time a year. I mean, could you imagine that when we gather here? We're just going to hold church in the parking lot. One person walks in and we hope they come out alive. <laughs> While God desires to be near, he's yet still distant. In Israel's history, God only ever told them to build just one temple. And so even in having just one temple, again, reminding God desires to be near, but the fact that there's only one location for the presence of God to dwell in this form for his people, for the remission of their sins, is still showing a distance between us and God. And so the reality of the temple shows us this God that desires to connect. And the reality of the temple shows us a problem for man because we can't quite get near to that God that we're created to belong to. Ecclesiastes 3.11 tells us, 
God has set eternity in our hearts. We know we're created for more. Yeah, I love here in this valley, I frequent going up on the tops of the mountains to look down at the valley below. Those are my some of my favorite times of just praying for our valley just to see that beauty. And, and you know, I often think when I'm up there on the mountains, um, I've yet to be up there and just think how great I am. But you look at the scope of the beauty and, and your, your heart begins to just worship at how great God is. You're created for worship. Your heart is created to connect. And where we get off uh, track as individuals is we take that heart that's designed for worship and we choose to worship things rather than the creator of those things. And we live like we're God. And those things created uh, for our purposes. And what we recognize in the heart of the human condition, though we're set for eternity, there is this this battle that takes place uh, for us to be connected to the very one that we were created in this this temple, though it's beauty and and the symbolism of how God desires to be near still reminds us of how distant we are. It, It makes me think back all the way to the beginning of creation. When God created uh, mankind, uh, theologians try to take the picture of the Garden of Eden and talk uh, akin to it, uh, to that of the temple. Because this was the dwelling place of God where mankind and woman, man and woman communed with God. And something real interesting happens in this story. In Genesis chapter 2, I think it's in, in verse 25, it tells us that man and woman are naked and unashamed. That statement in scripture makes for a really awkward children's Bible story, right? You think about, you get this with your kids. This is such an important part in theology for them to understand. But you just look at this and some Bibles make this really weird and bring it to your kids. It's like, that is not Adam, that's Tom and he's peeping, right? That's not, that isn't, but, but here's Adam and Eve and it tells us Genesis chapter 2 20 and verse 25, they were naked and unashamed. And then in chapter 3, verse 7, something strange happens to them. They sin. And then verse three, in, in, in chapter 3, verse 7, it says, Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. You ever wonder, what in the world is this talking about? Like, you read this to your kids, and you're like, Daddy, why are they naked? Let's worry about this when you're 30. Let's move on now, right? It's like, I don't want to talk about this to Grown adults behind the bushes, that's weird, right? But what's he saying? He's tapping into something here. He's demonstrating our vulnerability. Our want to be accepted, to belong. None of us like to feel insecure and vulnerable. I mean, it's like, maybe this has never happened to you, but, or maybe, maybe one or two of you, but you ever had that dream where all of a sudden you're in grade school and you show up and you forgot to put your pants on, you know, and you're like, everybody's just laughing you don't like this, the vulnerability and maybe I'm the only one, but, but the vulnerability of just, ah, insecurity and, and what do you do? And I think we can even get that way religiously. You want to belong. You get all dolled up and try to perform religiously to say to God, God, am I acceptable? 
And so if chapter, chapter 9, verses 6 to 10 is to say to us, while God created these symbolic pictures within the tabernacle and the temple, they were merely symbolic. They don't cover you the way he desired to ultimately be covered. You're still vulnerable. And your soul needs more. No amount of religion that you could ever perform in this temple or anywhere could address what the heart needs. And so the question becomes for us, why did God make the temple if it were simply insufficient? So if we're naked and insufficient, why the temple? And the answer for us, as the author is getting to this in this passage, is it was a shadow of what would ultimately come in Jesus. Listen, guys, in the Old Testament, you you didn't go to the temple because you proved yourself worthy. You actually went to the temple for the exact opposite reason. You You weren't allowed in the temple because you were worthy. You went to the temple because you were unworthy. You, you, you never come to God because you have it all together. You come to him because you don't and you're naked. And that's the point of the story of Adam and Eve when God says this to us. They were naked and unashamed. They had what they needed in life. They were sufficient in relationship with one another and with God. And all of a sudden sin enters and they find themselves exposed and insecure and disconnected from God because of sin and facing death and in that sin. And they needed to belong. And the first thing Adam and Eve do in that sin is they run and they cover themselves. They try to religiously perform to show God they're worthy enough. And it's never going to be enough. The temple was never intended for you to go and perform the works to cover yourself. In fact, you couldn't even go in. And when you, when you showed up to the outer courts to bring a sacrifice for the priest to go in for you, it wasn't because you were worthy, but rather because God was. And so in verse 11, then the author starts to build on this foundation for us. Look what he says. He says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? What's he saying here? He's saying, look, it was in, in verse 11, this was all symbolic for you. But something more perfect was coming in Jesus. And something greater that wouldn't just be in the shadow of an earthly tabernacle or temple, but rather in the heavenly. He would go before the Father and he would offer himself as a sacrifice for your sins. This earthly stuff is merely a shadow. It's just a game in comparison to what Jesus has done for you. And so he's, he's building this idea in us that, that the significance of everything the temple is, is represented fully in Jesus. The author has already laid the foundation for us. Exodus 25 verse 40, shadow in 26 verse 30, it was a plan of the heavenly temple. 
In fact, in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 31, verse 31, Ezekiel 36, and verse 26 told us the old covenant wouldn't be sufficient, that God was going to bring a new covenant, and then the new covenant, he would write his law on our hearts, and he would transform us from the inside out. It was only a shadow. The story goes on from there. It tells us in verse 15, I'm going to skip a little bit ahead in this section, but don't worry, I'm not skipping verses. We're going to come back to the verses I'm not touching on this week. We're going to come back next week because next week we're talking about sacrifice. But in verse 15, it says this, for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgression that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Verse 22, and according to the law, one may also say all things are cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So here's what he's saying. He's saying old covenant law, things were cleansed, things were cleansed with the blood. And and these things that were cleansed with the blood in verse 23 are are merely copies in this cleansing of what God would ultimately do for us in the heavenlies. And so this is just a shadow. So in verse 24, for Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. The author's saying, you don't really think that sacrificing animals in an earthly building is going to be sufficient for your sins, do you? You think that's enough? Now God in this passage is beginning to describe the greater sacrifice. He himself becoming flesh for your sins. So verse, verse 25 goes on from there. Verse 27 ends this way. And as much as it's appointed men to die once and after this comes judgment. When the Bible talks about death, it's not saying you go to the grave. That's not what it means. When the Bible talks about death, it means separation. You're separated from this earthly life. Your body is separated from the spirit. And without Christ, your soul is separated from God. That's what happened. The wages of sin is death. When the Bible talks about the wages of sin is death, it means separation. And the concern is for your soul being separated from God because you were intended to belong to God. You were created for an eternal relationship in God to last forever. Jesus and created in all things is God and Lord of all things. And he gives us in his death an opportunity as king dying for your sins to make a decision. Do you want to belong to this king and his kingdom or not? Because if you choose a kingdom of your own accord without him, God will give it to you. God won't force you to belong to him if you don't desire to belong. But God also gave his life for you. That you could belong. So it's appointed for man to die once. And after that comes the judgment. Judgment doesn't always have to be a negative word. But then it goes on and says, So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for the salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. Jesus understood the culmination of everything in the temple was reflecting of him. That's why when you read the Gospels, you see imagery proclaimed by Christ himself telling us symbolic representations of what took place within the temple now being fulfilled in him. 
In John chapter 1, verse 14, it tells us, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt literally means tabernacle. God was dwelling among people. It wasn't the temple now. It was Jesus tabernacling. He was the tabernacle. John, in chapter 1, verse 29, the next day John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Thinking about in the temple when the sacrifice was made, the lamb was sacrificed on the altar. And John is proclaiming Jesus as that lamb. That's why Jesus, when he gave his life, at the end of his life, he takes his disciples in the upper room in Matthew 26, 28. He says, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And Paul in Titus chapter 3, verse 5, thinking about the, the laver, the wash basin that existed in the outer court of the temple, he said, He saved us not, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration. In John 8, verse 12, then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but have the light of life. The only light that existed in the temple was the lampstand. And in this moment in John 8, Jesus is standing in the middle of the temple. And they're performing a ceremony where they take lights from the temple and they light up the outside to display that God is the light of the world. And Jesus is standing in this midst declaring himself to be that light. In John 6, verses 5, or excuse me, John 6, 51, he says, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world in my flesh. Jesus is pointing to us as being that communion to God, that bread that will sustain forever as he thinks about the the table of bread within the context of the temple. In John chapter 2 verse 19, Jesus answered answered and said this, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Jesus saw himself as the temple. In fact, in Mark 15, verses 38, the Bible tells us that between the outer courtroom and the inner courtroom, the Holy of Holies, there was a veil that existed, some say up to three inches thick, that horses couldn't even pull apart. But when Jesus is hanging on the cross, and in Mark chapter 15, and verse 38, it says this, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, demonstrating now our ability to connect to God. No longer is his temple in that building. But now his presence made known in the world. That's why Jesus, you ever read about Jesus getting angry in the temple and cracking out whips? The reason Jesus did that is around the temple, there was what's called uh, the outer courtyards. And there in the outer courtyards was a place for the nations to come. It was an attractional place for the nations to get near to God. And what happened in Jewish culture is they started to use this outer courtyard area for the buying, selling, and trading of goods so that when people went to the temple, they didn't have to take their lamb on the journey 20 miles to the temple to make a sacrifice. When they got to the temple, they could just purchase the unblemished lamb and go in and make the sacrifice. The problem was they started taking advantage of one another doing it, and they hiked the prices sky high. And truthfully, it got so bad that the priests would only allow those lambs into the temple because they said that they were the only ones proven without blemish and wouldn't got to a place where they wouldn't accept outside uh, sheep coming in. They were generating revenue. They were being very dirty in their dealings with the temple. And Jesus gets angry and Jesus starts whipping uh, through the temple and flipping over tables, getting rid of the money changers. 
And he said, my house is to be a house of prayer for the nations. But you've turned it into a den of thieves. And what Jesus is saying to his people is I want to invite the nations in to see what I'm about. And you guys are the most unwelcoming bunch I've ever been around. (laughs) That's important for us to recognize. Because God's desire remains the same for the nations. But Jesus very much sees himself as the representation of what the temple entailed. In fact, the woman at the well came to Jesus at one point. She was a Samaritan. The Samaritans had built their own temple. And she said to Jesus, Jesus, our people worship here. Your people worship down there. Where, where's the correct temple? And Jesus says, there's coming a time where it's not going to matter where you worship. But rather you're to worship in spirit and truth. And what Jesus is demonstrating for her is this idea that, that the idea of, of the temple is about to transform. That it's, it's no longer about about this specific place. It's no longer about gathering in this building. By the way, there, there, there were no other sacred things done in this temple. What you saw with those elements, those six sim, uh, symbols of furniture that were in the temple, that was what took there. there. There were no baptisms that took place there. There were no weddings that took place there. There were no uh, other uh, sacred practices. Those six elements represented everything that Jesus would fulfill. Why did God pick a temple? If he knew it was insufficient. I think first it shows us and demonstrates to us everything that Jesus would fulfill for us. But at the same time, I want you to remember who the Hebrew people were before the tabernacle. They were slaves with no identity. They were under a a leader known as Pharaoh. The Pharaoh and the Egyptians worshipped false gods. They worshipped many gods. In fact, the Egyptians looked at Pharaoh like he was a god. And when God tells Moses to go back before Pharaoh to proclaim, let his people go, God uses 10 plagues to do so. And God didn't just randomly pick 10 plagues. He picked 10 plagues that were a front to every god that Egypt worshipped. As if to say that the one true God has shown up for his people and your gods have nothing on, on the one true God. God, God then separating the Hebrew people out of Egypt through those 10 plagues, God then tells them to build a temple or a tabernacle. And temples and tabernacles were not foreign to the Hebrew people. In fact, this is in a place called Timnah. It's right outside of copper mines. This was a, a, a tabernacle built for slaves. They believe it would have had a tent that went over top of it that was dedicated to a false god in which uh, they would gather uh, to worship. And, and they had all sorts of these temples built throughout Egypt. And, and one of the, one of the uh, things that they would often do is they would build temples to worship Pharaoh. And as they've uncovered different temples and tabernacles that have been built for worshiping of Pharaoh, one of the things they've discovered as they've uncovered these is that uh, and this, is, this drawing is in uh, a temple dedicated to Ramses. But inside of this temple wall, there is a, a drawing. And on the drawing of, the, of this wall is a, a sketch of how Ramses would travel with his, his army. 
And you see in this drawing on the top left and the bottom right, they're the same drawing highlighted in different ways for you to be able to see it. But there's this outer courtyard where all of the army would, would gather together inside of this, these walls for, uh, for protection. And then inside of that courtyard, there was this tent that was erected. And it had two rooms. And in the first room, you can kind of see it, I think, in both pictures there. You see the priests that would go in and they're bowing down to this seat of where this authority figure would reign. And that was Pharaoh. And he would reign from the seat of power. And it's as if, 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 if this model, Ray Vanderland teaches this as a Bible scholar who does archaeological digs. But Ray Vanderland shows this symbolically of how God pulls his people out of slavery that, that have been taught to bow down to Pharaoh. And now rather bow, than bow down to these false gods, rather than bowing down to Pharaoh, God now in his theocracy shows and demonstrates himself as the one true king of kings for his people. And he has them build a temple. And in the temple, there are two rooms. And in those two rooms, the priests would go in and they would bow down to the mercy seat on which God would dwell. The one true God and one singular temple. What I'm saying is that God met his people where they were. He used their cultural context to demonstrate the significance of him in their lives. And rather than being under the bondage of Pharaoh, they were now free under the authority of their king. Guys, if I were to take this picture of what the tabernacle, the temple means for us today, the Old Testament and New Testament shows like this. He takes people that were naked and ashamed, that became slaves, sets them free, has them build a tabernacle to symbolically represent a foreshadowing of what would ultimately come and a king who would redeem them. And that king shows up and he plainly declares that he is that redemption. And now on the cross, the veil is torn and his presence goes forth into this world. And when you read the New Testament now, it says things like this. 1 Peter 2, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What Peter is saying is the building is not the church. The people are the church. And we represent living stones that are coming together to display the glory of who God is in our lives as he transforms us from the inside out. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul said it like this, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? I mean, the reason the church doesn't build temples today is because God already built that in you. You no longer have to go to buildings that only symbolically represent everything that God would fulfill because God has fulfilled it. And now at any given moment, the Bible calls you priests able to come before that king. And so whether we gather together or we scatter in this world, we're an influence of the light of Christ being made known in the lives of people around us. And God's desire for you in the New Testament, as you read it then, is to go forth into this world and let that light shine through you. What does that look like? 
I like to always close in this series with just a picture of church history, so let me give you this. As you are called to influence. And one of the most influential historical figures that we really don't teach about or really know much about today in American history is a man by the name of William Tennant. Uh, William Tennant was born in Ireland. He studied to become a minister, came to America in 1718. He had, um, he had a hand, four sons, and his desire became, as he came to America, he wanted land, he wanted freedom, and, and he was actually a little bit reluctant. He lived in Pennsylvania, but, but he was the only one really educated to be a minister in that area. He was a little bit reluctant to take on the position of a minister, but nonetheless, in Pennsylvania, he became uh, the, a pastor of a church there. And his desire as he was ministering was to educate his sons, to educate young men. He actually ends up building a log cabin and creating a college. In the first year of that college, 13 young men joined. As they graduated, they went on to establish uh, other colleges. And so his concern in building this college was uh, Christian higher education. How he could prepare young men for ministry and educate them to go further into life. When those 13 men graduated, they went on. They created higher education platforms in in this world. And so that log cabin college became a place that sent out uh, dozens and dozens of people for for ministry and higher education. In fact, if you were to go to the location of log cabin college today, there is a monument established there that says over 50 colleges were born out of log cabin college. 50 colleges in America, if you study the idea of of universities and colleges in America, out of the first 108 created, 106 of those were designed to create ministers for ministry. Education was driven by Christianity, influencing the world around it. In 1746, William Tennant died. his, his mark on history, uh, in American history, we have overlooked and not given him credit. But in the early 1700s, as William Tennant is preaching and teaching and, and preparing young men for ministry and, and seeing colleges born, England is writing about him. And they're actually saying that the heart of what began the Revolutionary War was birthed out of the influence of this man. William Tennant had strong influence in our culture. And and in fact, Log Cabin College still exists today. But you would better know it as Princeton University. Here is the mark of a man that looked at a generation of young people and were concerned for them, for the country he was now becoming a part of, wasn't born yet, but wanted to have influence. What I say to you this morning, guys, as you consider the beauty of what the temple is, the most beautiful thing that could have ever been conducted with the temple, and why you may think about elaborate buildings and all the things that people could erect in life, can I tell you the most beautiful thing that could ever be accomplished is what Jesus desires to do in you. And the way you can take the beauty of what he does in you and allow that to demonstrate itself in the world. You think about the power and the presence of God dwelling in this temple for Israel. Can I remind you that that same power and presence dwells within you this morning as you know Christ? For us, we may feel naked and vulnerable, but with the power of God in you, greater is he that is in you than he that's in the world.
This message has been brought to you by Alpine Bible Church in Lehigh, Utah. If you'd like more information, please visit us online at alpinebible.com.